0: Well, after five summers studying the book of Genesis, we finished that last year and we're starting in Exodus. And I think uh, maybe we'll get to Revelation one of these days. You're not confident, I can tell. There's such a lack of confidence. We're going to have a great time studying the book of Exodus together. When you think about Christianity, to understand it, you have to ask and answer two fundamental questions. Who is our God and how do we relate to that God? Those are the two fundamental questions. If you're going to understand Christianity, you have to understand who is our God and how do you relate to that God? Now, the entirety of the Bible is comprehensively answering these two fundamental questions. Who is our God and how do we relate to him? When you look at the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, they are the foundation for the entire superstructure of the Scripture, and they lay down all the basic elements that are necessary in answering these two fundamental questions of who is our God and how do we relate to him. Genesis was unmistakably clear. God is the creator of everything that exists. He is uniquely displaying his glory through humanity, who is the pinnacle of creation, but they have rebelled against the creator and the creator has promised then to save them from that rebellion through a promise, a promise of which he will move all of human history to keep. Exodus is equally clear in answering the two fundamental questions, who is our God and how do we relate to him? In fact, we could say, the entire book of Exodus can be structured around those two questions. That is the structure of the book of Exodus. Who is our God and how do we relate to him? It's not difficult to see the structure of that book. Moses, the author, lays it out very clearly. It's actually arranged around three different geographical locations. All of the book is located in three different geographical places. Egypt chapters 1 to 12, the wilderness chapters 13 to 18, and Mount Sinai chapters 19 to 40. Now each of these geographical locations from which we see the book of Exodus put together, they answer the two questions that are fundamental to our faith. Who is our God? How do we relate to him? In fact, Egypt And the wilderness show us who our God is. Sinai begins to show us how do we relate to him. Who is our God? Now that's going to be the focus of our attention for some time because we just move slowly through the book. And so about a chapter a week or so, we'll see how it goes. I don't have it all mapped out and God's providence seems to erase my plans anyway at times or change them we're going to spend some time just moving along and you're going to see it unpacked for us who is our God it should be constantly in your mind who is God showing us he is so the first 18 chapters reveal to us basically two characteristics of who God is and we'll we'll see that he is the redeemer he's our redeemer and he's our provider those are the two characteristics highlighted of who our God is. This is what God wants you to focus upon to understand who he is so you can then know how to relate to him. He is our redeemer. That's going to be chapters 1 through 12. And that's Egypt. And then he's our provider. That's chapters 13 through 18. That's the wilderness. This is who our God is. Redeemer and provider. So these first 12 chapters where we see that God is our Redeemer, it's going to show us all the background of the oppression of God's people, Israel, and the preparation of the man that God would use to deliver them and all the means that God used to compel Egypt to release Israel and delivers Israel from their captivity, thrust them into the wilderness to begin their way toward the land of the eternal promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Deliverance and redemption. Those are the themes we will go over, over and over again over the next 12 chapters in this book. In fact, they are key thoughts in these 12 chapters. Seven times in chapters 1 through 12, the word deliver is used. Seven times the word deliver is used to describe what God will do for Israel in liberating them from Egypt. Now, what is even more interesting is that two times... This deliverance that's described is actually called redemption. For example, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and really that's his name, Yahweh. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt of the Egyptians, and listen to this, I will deliver you from their bondage, I will also redeem you i'll deliver you and i'll redeem you i am the redeemer exodus 15 13 in your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed in your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation this is all about the redemption of god the redemption of god of his people now, as you read this chapter, and, and Mark read that for us just a moment ago, and yes, we read the whole chapter. He was asking me, which verses should I read? And I, can't, I said, I can't decide. I think just read all of them because they're all important, right? So I don't know what we'll do when there's 50 verses. Maybe we'll read them all. You're all right with that. That's good. That's good. But as we're coming into this first chapter... And you hear it and you read it, you begin to think, where is this redemption? There doesn't seem to be much redemption here. In fact, the question that you're asking when you read the first chapter is not who is God. The question you're asking when you read the first chapter, if you read it in isolation, is where is God? Where is God? Especially after you've studied the book of Genesis. And God, we've seen, was everywhere in everything. God isn't even mentioned for the first 16 verses of this entire chapter. Where's this God of Genesis that we just finished? Where is He? All of the dramatic developments of Genesis that highlight the promises made and maintained by that God who created all things by speaking them into existence. Where is He? This seems disastrous. This doesn't seem like the fulfillment of promise. This seems like a disaster. Which is the question we often ask ourselves almost despairingly when we're going through intense trials, isn't it? You ever ask that question? You say, I'm, I'm supposed to be a Christian. I belong to God. Why? Why am I going through this? Where is God in this? Why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be this violent? Why does it have to be this intense? If I'm one of God's children, where is he in this? That is the question that you are left asking in chapter one. And it will set us up to see who he is. So what we'll learn in this opening chapter is that God is our Redeemer who is always present. He is our Redeemer, who is always present with his people. And I'm I'm going to show you that Moses makes this very plain. That while his name may not be mentioned often, his presence is explicitly alluded to here. So that you do not miss, God is always present with his people. There is never a time that God is absent from his people. Absent in any kind of disaffirming way, he's always affirmingly present with his people. Always, if they are his. Always. So, showing us God as our Redeemer, Exodus 1 is going to focus our attention on three reminders of God's continual presence with his people. That's what we're going to see in the first chapter. Three reminders of God's constant presence with his people. Let's unpack these together. Three reminders of God's constant presence with his people. First, it's in the first seven verses. God is present in his people's prosperity. God is present in his people's prosperity prosperity. I want you to see how this unfolds in this opening chapter. The first five verses actually pick up the record where Genesis left off. In fact, the very first two words in the Hebrew text are the words, these are the names. These are the names. That's actually the title of this book. The title of this book is These Are the Names. The title of this book that Moses gave this is These Are the Names. Moses didn't give the title Exodus. Someone else later on down the road, centuries later, a millennia later, they gave it this title, Exodus. The title is These Are the Names, which should remind us this book is not just about being delivered from Egypt. It has much more to do than just the deliverance through the plagues and leaving Egypt. It has much more to do than just that. It has to do with the sons of Israel. This is all about the sons of Israel whom we learned about in the book of Genesis and the promise that God made to them. Well, where are they now? We saw them delivered from the famine and they go into Egypt. Well, where are they now? Well, here are the names. Here are the people. Here are the sons of Israel. It continues the narrative of Genesis. It's not just about leaving exodus it's much more in fact when he mentions these names of the sons of israel and he lists them in verses 2 3 and 4 all of that brings us back actually to the book of genesis in chapter 46 specifically where there is a detailed description of the sons of israel and their households who comprise as it's described here 70 persons right all the persons, verse 5, who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. That's a reference back to Genesis chapter 46, and it brings us back there. However, if you were to compare those, and you don't have to do that right now, if you were to compare the list of the sons in Genesis 46 and the list here, they're presented in a different order, which is fascinating. It's an order in which the Hebrew writers described as a chiastic formation here, chiastic Taken from the Greek letter key or an X where it moves from the outside to the inside back to the outside. It's, it's described this way. Verse two and the first two sons mentioned in verse three are the sons born to Jacob's wife Leah. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then the last two sons, Gad and Asher, these are the sons who are born to Jacob's wife Leah. Or, pardon me, verse 3, the first two sons there, Issachar and Zebulun. The last sons mentioned, Gad and Asher, are born to Leah's handmaid. You remember that? The servant of Leah that she used to bear two more sons under her name. Now, the sons in the middle, beginning with the last son in verse 3, which was the only son that Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, bore to him outside of Joseph, who was already in Egypt. His name is mentioned at the very middle, and then the next two sons are the sons born to her handmaid, Bilhah. So what you have is on the outside are the sons of Leah, born to Leah, but in the middle are the sons born to Rachel. Particularly right in the middle is the son Benjamin, which picks up where we left off. Who was the son of great affection and love in the book of Genesis? It was Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin. Who was the wife that Jacob loved the most? It was Rachel and those two precious sons born to her. So there's an emphasis here. Benjamin highlights Rachel and these sons. So it brings us back from Genesis to say, we aren't moving on from anything else. We're continuing the story. Where is God? He's here with the sons of Israel. Now verse five is an all important verse. These are all the persons who came from, notice the phrase, the loins of Jacob. Now you might pass over that very quickly, but again, this ties us back into Genesis in a very explicit way. Do you remember Genesis 32 and that monumental event when Jacob is actually on the mountain wrestling with God? Do you remember that scene? Do you recall what happened during that all night wrestling match? with God Genesis 32:25 mentions when he that is the angel or God saw that he had not prevailed against him Jacob he touched the socket of his thigh so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him the word thigh is the same word for loins used here in verse 5. Why did God strike Jacob in the loins? Why? You say, God really did that? Yes, he did. You're thinking, I don't know if you're supposed to talk about that on Sundays at church. That's what God did. He hit him hit him right there. Why? He hit him right in his descendants. Right? What comes from the loins? The descendants. And then he renamed him. What did he rename, Jacob? Israel. He renamed him from one who grabs to Israel is one who struggles. Saying that you're the one who struggles with God and in your generations will come an entire people in my promise who will wrestle with me, struggle with me, struggle with those around them, struggle with me. Right there is Israel's history, isn't it? So from the loins of Jacob, the loins that actually have the hand of God present, and the reminder that they would be a people who struggle, they're right there. Where is God? Again, these subtle reminders in the text that if you know the book of Genesis, you see he's bringing us back. God is right here in the middle of all of this. And those who came from Jacob's loins, these were would be the nation that God would use to bring all the other nations back to God. Which was the promise of Genesis 12 and how God would bring out a nation from Abraham that would bring blessing, salvation to all the other nations of the earth. That's highlighted for us here. Even verse 6 connects us back to the end of Genesis when it says, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation it takes us back into Genesis chapter 50 verses 22 to 26 and the death of Joseph and all that had gone on there and then it catapults us forward not only did Joseph die, all his brothers died and then all that generation so everyone connected to the season of which Joseph and his history and his influence were present in Egypt they're all gone they've all left All that generation, everyone in Egypt who had lived through that season of history are now gone. What I find really fascinating is that if you keep in mind the promise of God, the promise of God was tied to a land that was not in Egypt. And in all of this time, Joseph probably lived in Egypt just under a hundred years And after him, the entire generation that would have known him is gone. And there's no move. Do you see it? There's no move of Israel to go back to the land of promise. There's not a famine anymore. There hadn't been a famine for probably a century or more. Why aren't they going back? Why aren't they leaving and going back to the place where God said, this is where I'll make you a great nation and I will scatter you and I will cause you to be the blessing that impacts all the other nations of the earth. They're not going back. Why? They're content. Did you see that? They're content. You say, well, how do you know that? Verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful. And they increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Why leave that? Why would you ever leave prosperity? This seems to be the place where God now has them. And they're, they're abundantly blessed. Notice all of the language of prosperity in verse 7. They are fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, they became exceedingly mighty, and all the land was filled with them. You'd look at that and you said, say, that's, that's blessing, isn't it? And it is. In fact, it's biblical blessing. And again, if you're asking the question, where is God? All of those words should be so familiar to you that they draw you back to Genesis and remind you where God is. What was the original mandate to the first two people on earth? Genesis 1.26. God blessed them. He blessed them. And God said to them, be what? Fruitful and multiply. What are, what's happening with them? Fruitful, multiply. What were the words that God spoke to Noah after the flood and his family exited the ark into a virtually recreated world? Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Reiterated again in verse 7 of Genesis 9 what was the promise to Abraham and to his descendants? Genesis 17, 2. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. This is the hand of God. This is the blessing of God. In chapter 22, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, God reestablished the covenant relationship with Abraham at that time. And he said to him in verse 17 of Genesis 22, indeed, I will greatly bless you. There's the blessing again from God. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sandwiches on the seashore do you remember the promise reiterated to Abraham's son Isaac Genesis 26 24 I will bless you and multiply your descendants and that same blessing was made from Isaac to his son Jacob in Genesis 28 3 May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples, reiterated again in chapter 35, verse 11. And that same statement was made about Israel after they came to Egypt during the famine, Genesis 47, 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen and they acquired property in it and they were fruitful and became very Numerous. The same promise was rehearsed from Jacob to Joseph while in Egypt, Genesis 48, verse 4. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples. In other words, all of the words used in Exodus 1, 7 are a rehearsal of the promise that God made and began with the original people of God before sin entered the world and then for his unique people who would represent him uniquely to all the other nations of the earth the same words are used from their blessing now are present with the blessing on the Israelites where is God? who's causing this increase? so if you know Genesis where's God? he's in their prosperity. He is the one behind all of this prosperity. And again, the way he's writing this, you should see it. You shouldn't miss it. He's very present in their prosperity. God is present in prosperity. Does that make you nervous to hear a pastor say that in a church that doesn't believe in the prosperity gospel? God is not anti prosperity. The language of prosperity is in the blessing of God from the beginning, reiterated through the covenant promise. But we know that it is God that makes one rise up and one to fall, that gives one wealth and deprives another. 1 Samuel 2 7, the Lord makes poor and rich, he brings low and he exalts. Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 was a reminder to Israel when they came into the promised land a land filled with abundance and prosperity that they should not forget God and he says in verse 17 otherwise you may say in your heart my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth but you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Proverbs 10.22 reminds us, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So if you are prosperous, and the reality is, everyone in here is pretty prosperous. We are. You may have struggles, and you may have moments where it doesn't seem like, My prosperity equals someone else's prosperity, but just looking around the room, there's a lot of prosperity sitting in here. A lot of it. It is good, and it's right, to not only see the the sovereignty of God in prosperity, and, and not merely see prosperity as a result of your own ability, ingenuity, or hard work, all of which God may have used in your acquiring of some prosperity, But prosperity is always dependent on the providential governing hand of God to make it successful. God can and he does use prosperity. He may use it as a demonstration of the value of his promise and what it is to be his people. He could cause some to be prosperous to show the hand of his blessing on them. Maybe even to distinguish his people from others, he may grant prosperity. He may use prosperity to provide strength and to highlight his people. Even he might use prosperity to prepare his people for some unique expression of his plans in the future. And we should remember, any glimpse that we have of earthly prosperity right now is just that. It is a glimpse It is a glimpse. It is a taste. It is a moment of foreshadowing of what the people of God will all have in abundance on a recreated earth of which he allows all of his people to enjoy. You go back to the book of Genesis. Was the original world that God made a prosperous place? (sighs) Unbelievably prosperous. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve? Everything in the garden is yours to enjoy. Everything. And it was theirs to enjoy to its fullest. Everything that God is doing right now is bringing everything to a conclusion where one day he'll bring the heavens and the earth together in one place where the people of God enjoy it the way they were supposed to enjoy it in the beginning. Which is massive, unhindered, Enjoyment of complete prosperity that we cannot even ma- imagine right now. So any glimpse he gives you now of that is just that a glimpse. A foretaste. Which is why we need to be careful with it. He has not guaranteed our prosperity now. To be God's people doesn't mean that you will always have prosperity now. Now sometimes prosperity is a test isn't it while God does promise eternal prosperity he does not guarantee it now God not prosperity must be our priority right present prosperity while it is given from God can be equally taken away from God do you need many examples of that it can be taken away Prosperity is not an end in itself. It's a means to achieve other purposes. And present prosperity is always a very weak crutch from which you would try to lean your full weight upon. It's a test. Many times prosperity is a test of your contentment with God. Maybe it's a test of whether you would become spiritually complacent, lazy, in the pursuit of God, lazy in seeing the generosity of God. It's a platform also. Prosperity is a platform from which God may choose to launch other scenarios necessary to, comp- to accomplish his other purposes and ultimate purposes. You say, well, what do, what do you mean by that? What did the prosperity of Israel that is clearly from God in verse seven do for Israel? it made the nations around them jealous and it was the platform platform from which their slavery came right present prosperity may be a moment of kind enjoyment from god it is not to be our all consuming pursuit do not pursue personal temporal earthly prosperity the love of money is the ground floor the roots behind all kinds of evil it may be an opportunity to encourage and assist other people but if it's 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 not a spiritual goal to pursue it could be a means to inspire gratitude but present prosperity is never a satisfying end in itself ever And one of the spiritual dangers of earthly prosperity is the temptation to become spiritually complacent in it. That's Israel in this moment. They're enjoying Egypt. And Egypt was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's prosperous plan, was it? He did not promise prosperity in Egypt. He promised prosperity where? In Canaan. And yet they have prosperity under the hand of God and now they don't want to leave it. God is no longer the goal. Prosperity and keeping it and enjoying it. Why, why rock the boat? Why mess this up? Egypt's not the land of promise. It's not to be their home. It wasn't their aim and life. Just like us. This world, this life, is not your home. It's not all there is right? There's more to come. There's better to come. This is not it. This is not what we live for now. The promise of God goes beyond this life. It's fulfilled, not in this life, but beyond. So be very careful about pursuing prosperity. God may, in his sovereign providential hand, choose to give it to you. And he will have a thousand reasons for which he does it. Not all of which are just to satisfy you with stuff some of which might be to test you as to the loyalty of your heart or even propel you into a period of suffering so that his hand of redemption might be more cherished than it is. But nonetheless, where is God? He's clearly in their prosperity, isn't he? Clearly. The second reminder comes up in verses 8 to 14 of where God is and that he is always present. And there's a reminder here given to us. God is present not only in their prosperity but in his people's pain. God is present in his people's pain. It's fascinating that the next sentence, right after the highlight of covenantal Faithfulness from God to bring blessing and exaltation is an ominous comment about the new sheriff who's come to town. You see it in verse 8? Now, a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. A lot of time has gone by. Between the tribes of Israel coming into Egypt and this new king arriving on the scene. There is a significant debate as to the identity of this Pharaoh, and that debate has raged for years. It continues to rage. I was reading a number of recent articles about it, and what used to be held by conservative scholars is being questioned even today because there's lots of debate on who this Pharaoh is. I know Yule Brenner told us it was Ramses. it's possible that this new pharaoh was one known as Thutmose III. Some refer to him as the Napoleon of the ancient Egyptian world. He was known for his military conquests and bringing Egypt to its highest place of wealth and power. And it's an interesting conjecture, there's some question about it, but some conjecture that the pharaoh of Joseph's day was related to a and actually not an Egyptian people but a Semitic people who had taken over Egypt and they became the new Egypt as it were. And that might have been why they were somewhat favorable to Joseph and his clan because they came from Semitic roots even though they now had the Egyptian identity. And that ancient Semitic group that brought Egypt to its power was then thrust out of power by Thutmose III and others, and you could see why, if that is the case, a primarily Semitic Egyptian people cast out, the new regime would have no affinity for that old one or anyone associated with it. So that could be the case here. And if so, that would mean that his son, a man by the name of Amenhotep II, that he would be the pharaoh of the Exodus because it indicates in chapter 2, verse 23, the text does that the one pharaoh during the chapter 1 dies, a new pharaoh arises, but neither pharaoh has any affinity for Joseph. So you could get into a great debate on that, and people do, and they make it a big, big deal, but did you notice that the Bible doesn't tell us who it is? So it doesn't really make any difference difference to us the fact that God in his word did not tell us who Pharaoh is but he did tell us the names of two maidservants two delivery nurses means that Pharaoh's name is insignificant isn't that interesting Pharaoh's name is actually insignificant we do know for certain that by the time that Israel leaves Egypt in the plagues and after the plagues they had been there for 430 years Exodus 12:40 indicates that the sons of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years and that was precisely prophesied to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 that they would be enslaved by another people for over 400 years so here it's come about Now what that means, think of this, what that means is that this Pharaoh likely knew the history of Joseph, but it was just that, history. 400 years, 300 plus years have gone by. (laughs) I mean, Joseph's influence 300 years later had about as much influence on that present Pharaoh as say, well, someone like Edmund Jennings Randolph has on the present president of the United States. You say, well, who in the world is Edmund Jennings Randolph? Does anybody know who Edmund Jennings Randolph is? Just raise your hand if you think you know and you haven't had time to Google it. <laughs> well, he would have had the same kind of position as someone like Joseph in Egypt. Edmund Jennings Randolph was the, the, the second secretary of state of the United States. How much influence does he have on President Biden today, do you think? Oh, I'm sure Biden's heard his name. I'm sure every president that assumes office has heard the name of that secretary of state. He was influential, even though he had only one year of, of office. Followed Thomas Jefferson. Influential, but who cares? That's the kind of thing you would see with this Pharaoh with Joseph. It's history. It's 300, 300 years ago. Who cares? It's Joseph. It's long been gone. So he probably knows his name, but he doesn't care anything about him. And while it's not necessary for us to know the precise identity of Pharaoh here, it's very necessary for us to know what this Pharaoh did to God's people, and what did he do? He enslaved them. I mean, you almost hear the story of Joseph rising and falling again. Joseph, who rose to the second most powerful position in the land, under the second most powerful leader of someone like Potiphar, and then he crashes down to become the manager of Pharaoh's prison. Now you see Israel at the heights, and now dropping down to the depths. Verse 9, Pharaoh says to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel, listen to this, are more and mightier than we. That is an astounding note. In 430 years, the population of Israel grew larger than the native population of the Egyptians. We already know from Joseph's time that the Egyptians loathed the Jewish people to the point where they would not eat in the same room with them. So can you imagine what the ethnic tension was like now? Now that this group of outsiders, who are not really outsiders, they've been there for over 400 years, they're fully involved in the community contributing to the the economic base and to the productivity of the nation they're a part of Egypt and yet somehow they're still distinct from it to the point where one leader says they are more and mightier than us meaning they aren't us verse 10 come let us deal wisely. That actually is hearkening back to Genesis also. Do you remember Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and the people who wanted to build the city and they said, come, let us build a name for ourselves against God. Here's Pharaoh, you hear, you hear the Babylonian voice in him as it were, come. Let us deal wisely. Literally the word means skillfully. Let's deal skillfully with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. The concern here is that the Israelites who actually, unknown to Pharaoh, they love living in Egypt. They have no plans to go anywhere. They're prosperous in Egypt. But the concern is that they're going to want to join with a rival group. And maybe that goes back to the ethnic tension that is is always there. Well, what if a, a rival group comes in and they begin to war against us? This group will, they're more and mightier. They could take over because now they could own Egypt. Think of their prosperity they could have then. Too bad they didn't understand how the Israelites were thinking. No, we don't want to rock the boat. Pharaoh sees that they bring a benefit to the land of Egypt. We've got to keep them here. This is a workforce that we can't we can't lose. They're prosperous to the land. So we've got to do this in a skillful way that keeps them here, that doesn't let them rise in any kind of military power, but keeps them working for us. So, verse eleven they appointed taskmasters, which is a word that virtually every other place is translated as officials or leaders. They just they created like regional governors. Governors that would rule over the Israelites. And so these taskmasters or these leaders, these governors, would afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. We don't know much about these two cities. Pithom is a word that means the house or it could mean the temple of Atum. Very little is known about it. The city of Ramses literally means the house of Ramses, one who is great and mighty and powerful, doesn't demand that the pharaoh of this era is Ramses II, who was one of the most powerful pharaohs in Egypt. It's just a city that carries that name. What were these storage cities? Well, we we don't know for sure. Likely they were some kind of military storage facilities, or they could have been places that housed temples devoted to the Egyptian gods, which would have been fascinating. Fascinating. Let's take the Israelites and make them build temples to our gods. Let's rub their noses in what they hate. Let's subject them underneath us and our gods so that they're building the temples of the gods who rule over them. That might have been the thought. So, where is God? Where is God? How interesting that we always assume his presence in prosperity and then intense, violent affliction comes. And we start asking, where is he? Verse 12, they were afflicted, but it says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, there's the same word again, and the more they spread out so that the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel what was happening the blessing of God was still there they continued to grow they continued to be mighty it could have been that Pharaoh thought hey some of these guys are going to die off with all of this affliction that we put on them but they kept growing where is God he's present look at verse 13 the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously the, the word rigorously could be translated as violently speaks of intense severity it is painfully ruthless, it's unfair, it's inequitable, it's unjust, it's painful. Where is God? Has he left? This is the work of God. This is the work of God to cause a persecuted people to flourish in number even while they're subdued in influence and power. The pain itself, the violence is not good. It's not right. We don't rejoice in the sinful actions done against other people. The pain is real. It brings floods of tears, no doubt. It likely can breed anger and even fear. My guess is it breeds some kind of quest for retaliation. But God is not absent. He's not absent. In fact, knowing what we know about the end of this story... Israel's present persecution was the precursor to the grandeur of God's glory in their redemption, isn't it? What makes their redemption so powerful and glorious? Well, look at the severity of their persecution. Never view affliction for your faith, for your identity, in connection with God's people as a sign of God's absence. He's not gone. Do you know how many conservative Christians are living in such radical fear because of what they see as an impending, unjust, unfair, unpatriotic, what we might say un American government intrusion on the horizon? almost as if if we don't have what we have now, we are not really free. Now, who wants to go through pain and sorrow and persecution? I don't. If I can vote, I will. But I'm not gonna, I better not resort to fear, inwardness, anger, retaliation, as if God is not present and I must be the one who leads the charge against this inequity. What if God uses affliction to discipline us? Does that mean he's upset with us? No, 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 no. Discipline by the Father means I want you to grow. I don't want to harm you. I want to take your fingers off of what is actually harming you so that you will cling to what will be good for you, which is me. Could you ever see the opposition to Christian faith, to the church of Jesus as the platform from which God is developing the details for the church's eventual redemption and glorification. Perhaps we should meditate on the reality that the severity of our affliction is piling up the evidence that God will use to show the justice of his severity when he judges those who come against his people. Affliction has a tendency to brighten and deepen the brilliance of God's redemption and judgment. We love it more when we, we see it in the midst of pain and suffering. And think of what affliction does in the midst of God's people when he begins to squeeze out of us what we tend to trust in him, trust in outside of him. And this is not harsh, it's not unkind. Could affliction and pain draw you into deeper dependence on God? It can. It does. Can affliction and its severity be the means to pry your fingers off of what you cling to more tightly than God? It could be. So that you don't try to satisfy yourself with lesser things. What if God didn't want Israel in Egypt anymore? And he wanted them in the land of promise. But they loved Egypt. Pain is not the absence of God. He's still present. And he's still working. And he's setting up the scene so that it will highlight his goodness in ways that may have never been contemplated by any of us. That brings us to the third reminder of God's constant presence with his people that shows that God is our ever present Redeemer. Number three, God is present in his people's preservation. In their preservation. Verses 15 to 22. The pain that Pharaoh inflicted did not accomplish the subjugation that he intended. You see in verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. (laughs) He spoke to who? The greatest power in the ancient world spoke to two midwives? I'm not sure that they were known for their political prowess. Influence, cultural significance. This is who Pharaoh talks to? How interesting. He talks to two midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it's a daughter, then she shall live. How interesting. This powerful man, in the consultation with two midwives, Two midwives who are named in the presence of an unnamed Pharaoh. Who's significant? In God's eyes. The insignificant. You ever heard that before in the Bible? This is how God does it, isn't it? Two very culturally insignificant people who will actually shape national policy. And preserve people. We don't know who these two women are. They're never named again by name in the Bible. Just here. Just to highlight how insignificant Pharaoh is in God's plans. Now, are there only two? I I don't know. Verse 19 may be a suggestion when it says that the... Hebrew women are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife can get there. That could indicate that there are other midwives and that these two are kind of like the the head over the midwife group. We know there were some 600,000 fighting men that actually leave Israel, meaning there could be some two million Israelites at this time. That's a lot of people, isn't it, for two midwives? But we we don't know for sure. But this is where the Plans for subjugation have now given way to designs for annihilation. The aim here is to keep the male population, that is the potential soldiers, to a minimum. It is to neuter the Jewish population and keep the women perhaps for the Egyptian purposes. It's a kind of view of life that is so reprehensible, that views human life as expendable for personal interests, for political interests social desires. Human life becomes expendable to the plans and desires for personal or even political exaltation. Ever heard anything like that before? Of course you have. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Can I just suggest that in a culture that doesn't view human life as anything other than expendable for personal pursuits. The only thing that will preserve human life is the fear of God. That's it. And they feared God. I don't take this as just they had a fear of deity. I think they feared the God of the Bible. These are Hebrew midwives and they fear God. They have God's view of life, of human life. And they knew that this was not just before God. It's offensive to God. There was a higher law than Pharaoh for them to follow or any other human will that might be at play. God's purposes for people were higher than other person's plans. And so it says they feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them but let the boys live. Now we don't know precisely how they did this But it happened, and Pharaoh knew it. In fact, in in verse 18, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, they're lively, that's the word, they're lively. And they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Some suggest, ah, that's a crafty lie. Did they lie to Pharaoh? I mean, it clearly says they did not do what Pharaoh told them to do. Did they lie? Well, perhaps. And you say, well, is this a righteous lie? Can lying be righteous? And you might make an argument that in light of the extremity of the evil, the deception was perhaps less wicked, like asking an undercover policeman to take on another identity. We don't normally look at that as unrighteous. But it could be that these midwives, from their fear of God, concocted some kind of a plan to keep them from having to make this choice. Did they tell the other midwives that Pharaoh was up to this thing? Did word get out to the Hebrew women? about pharaoh's plans it's possible so that the the midwives wouldn't be called as the wife was about to get give birth and they gave birth and the midwife came in and now she's no longer under the obligation of pharaoh's law they may not be lying to pharaoh they may in fact be telling the truth just not everything were they telling about the plans they had to preserve these children it's very possible and it says that God showed favor to these women. Verse 20, God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. What is that? They multiplied and became very mighty. Those are the languages of the blessing of God, isn't it? They're fruitful. And verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he established households for them, meaning the midwives might've been barren women who were helping others give birth. And God chose them, His kind blessing to make even them fruitful and multiply. There's his hand of blessing again. Through the godly decisions of a few people, God's presence is felt and it's displayed and it results in the preservation of his people. And that infuriates Pharaoh. Where he could no longer be perhaps subtle in his murderous plans to kill the Hebrew children, he nationalizes abortion you see it in verse 22? Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all his people, the whole nation. It becomes national policy. You are to cast into the Nile, the Nile being the river that was actually represented the God of life. You are to take these Hebrew children and cast them into this Nile and kill them. Every daughter you're to keep alive, but every son, every son who is born, you're to cast into the Nile. I have no idea how many children died in that. Likely many. When the whole nation is called, it's not just a few midwives, the whole nation is now called to take Hebrew children and throw them into the water to kill them. I can't even imagine what that nightmarish scene would have looked like of someone coming in and taking children and murdering them. Can you? Where's God? But doesn't this set up the next scene? When a baby is born and hidden and it happens to be just the baby that God would use to raise up to deliver his people, where is God? He's not absent. He's not absent. We, we can't possibly conceive of the intricacies of satanic plans that are fueling influential people and in political and socially influential positions. But we can trust that God is at work despite them. We know that he is. So where's God? Where is this God who redeems his people? Where is the redeemer? Well, he's present. He's always present in their prosperity, in their pain, even in their preservation. He's always present. But in the midst of this, I want you to... Don't close your Bible yet. I know the time. I'm looking. When you're going through these moments, even as a believer, how do you trust God? I mean, this is this is a kind of pain and affliction and depth of discouragement. I'm not sure that we in this room know the weight of all of that. But I am sure that many of you have felt things that have been so painful to you and so discouraging and bring you to this distraught nature that you're wondering, how do you trust God in this? Do you just say, well, God's God's at work and I'm just gonna have to hope and pray that he'll do something here? Is there anything more tangible than that? Well, we do have the biblical record of this that reminds us God is at work. But did you know we also have something more than just the historical evidence? A few years ago when we were studying the book of Hebrews, we came across this passage that says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold on to our confession." What does Jesus have to do with us persevering in trial? Because we do not have a high priest who cannot, do you remember the line? Sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the one who's at the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in time of need. And you say, that's beautiful, but what does that have to do with the reality of the pain that we're going through? Here's this historical example. Have you ever considered what Jesus endured? What was his prosperity like? Well, Philippians chapter two says that his, his prosperity was incomprehensible He existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He shared glory with God, John 17 says. What was his affliction like? Unimaginable. Philippians 2, 7 says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He was born as a man. Well, what did Jesus give up when he took on human flesh and was born in Bethlehem? Why did Jesus survive the abortion plans of Herod that seem similar to what we're reading in Exodus 1. Why did he go through that? Why did he endure constant temptation from the devil throughout his earthly life and betrayal from those who were even closest to him and the people that he created? He was found in appearance as a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died a wicked Death. Why did he die in humility and affliction and pain? Well, what about his preservation? Philippians two nine says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So when Hebrews says he's been tempted in everything as we are, what does that mean? Prosperity, pain, preservation, without sin. So that he stands in front of the Father right now, at this moment, pleading with God the Father on your behalf. So you can say, I can trust. Not just that somehow God will, the one who has endured everything like we in have to go through and did it perfectly, completely, is the one who is pleading for me, I look to him to trust him. He has done it all for us. God is present. Didn't Jesus tell us that? And lo, I am with you always. I'm the one who went through everything you could possibly go through perfectly, and I'm with you, even as I'm before the Father pleading for you. If you're not a Christian, you need that substitute, that mediator pleading for you. If you're a Christian, you do not doubt the presence of God in the midst of everything that you're going through because one who has gone through it all for you stands on your behalf before the Father. That's what faith consists of. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would